What role does trauma play in shaping us as human beings? How do the flaws in our criminal justice system harm vulnerable populations? And how can legal professionals shift their perspectives on justice reform in order to help improve the system? I'm Teresa Maddich, and this is Matters. Matters is a podcast presented by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, where we look at small changes that can make a big impact on lawyers' daily lives and practices. In this episode, and several episodes to follow, we're bringing you the one-on-one interviews we conducted at the 2019 Clio Cloud Conference, which took place in San Diego. These conversations will feature the conference's keynote speakers, as well as some of the legal experts and industry innovators who attended and shared their insights on industry issues. These interview-style episodes will give you a sense of the excitement and thought leadership found at the Clio Cloud Conference. More importantly, they'll give you a front row seat to conversations with true change makers who have thought-provoking, inspiring, and meaningful stories to share. This episode is the first of a two-part series on criminal justice reform and why it matters. At the conference, I interviewed Shaka Senghor, the president and creative director of Shaka Senghor Inc., about his firsthand experiences with the American criminal justice system, his work to shift societal narratives, and what lawyers and legal professionals can do to help change the conversation. Yeah, so my name is Shaka Singor. I am the author of Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, Redemption in American Prison, and I am a content creator. Uh, I do a lot of work in the social impact space, specifically around criminal justice. Amazing. One thing that you say on your website is that hurt people hurt people. What do you mean by that? I mean, when you think about the level of trauma um, that people experience in life, typically it has to manifest in some way. And oftentimes it manifests in them hurting or traumatizing other people. And I do a lot of work in the space of, like, um, you know, gun violence prevention. And what I've found in my experience of being formerly incarcerated, as well as being somebody who was shot at early age, is that a lot of people who end up in prison or end up committing acts of violence were actually victims of violence before they were ever perpetrators. Yeah, and that was your experience as well. You talk about how you probably most likely did have symptoms of PTSD that just went untreated because nobody asked you how you were feeling at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've gone through a lot of traumatic experiences, but specifically I was shot when I was 17 years old and never received any treatment or an invitation to get treatment. And... Um, that had a dramatic, dramatic impact on my life in the sense that I began to carry a gun every day and eventually I used that gun and, and caused another man's death uh, based on my actions. So it's just that cycle of violence uh, can definitely be disrupted if we start ensuring that people get the type of care that they need when they've been through a traumatic experience. And how big of a factor do you think that gap is right now in the cycle of violence that you're talking about? I mean, I think it's an enormous gap. I mean, like, you know, I grew up in the city of Detroit, which has grappled with gun violence for a very long time. Uh, Neighboring city, Chicago, same issue. Uh, South Central L.A., you know, a lot of inner cities where, you know, Compton and, you know, these cities where there's high level of gun violence. I mean, you have kids who live in a very... Um, you know, traumatic environment, you know, and yet they're supposed to go to school and perform like kids who don't have to deal with the same level of trauma. And, and we just don't, you know, acknowledge that, you know, we acknowledge it when it's like mass shootings, but we don't acknowledge it when it's like multiple shootings in inner cities. And I think it's important for us to have that conversation about PTSD in the inner city. And so 
part of your star, your story uh, involves a prison experience. And when you tell people about that, what misconceptions do they have? Like, what surprises them when you tell them about your experience? I think what surprises a lot of people is when I talk about prison and my prison experiences that they're shocked by who's actually in prison. Like, the level of genius, the level of intelligence and creativity. And what they often don't really understand is that People land in prison for a variety of reasons that doesn't always necessarily include them being bad people. You know, our judicial system is really terrible in the sense that uh, justice isn't administered to people who are poor, who come from environments where limited resources. Uh, we've overcriminalized a lot of things. You know, we're starting to see some shifts with that, like, you know, in the marijuana industry where now people can, uh, people are making a lot of money off things that people went to prison for a lot of time for, you know. so. I think people are shocked when they, when they realize that the idea of the scary con is really a con in itself. You know, the, the people have been sold on this idea of like punishment, 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 fear, fear, fear. But, you know, I've taken a lot of people inside prison and they're always shocked at the men and women that they meet inside. And once they start to hear the stories and the backstories and the trauma that people have been through, you know, it really awakens something in them. You know, as Brian Stevenson always talks about, you know, when you bring people in proximity to the issue, like your, your, your perspective is never the same. And so I try to bring as many people in proximity to it as possible. Absolutely. And even when things are very, very proven, like you talked about um, solitary confinement and there's been studies on the mental effects of that and how it's like a barbaric and even torturous practice. And yet it's still widely used in the prison system today. Why, why do you think that persists? I think it exists because it affects primarily black and brown bodies. And I think the reality is that in this country, we've struggled with being honest about that. You know, um, it's no way remotely possible that the system would look the way that it looked if it was impacting primarily white people, right? Uh, so we had to just deal with that. We had to do it with the historical aspect of it. You know, the 13th Amendment um, created a space for the re-enslavement of people who were emancipated by, um, you know, uh, President Abraham Lincoln, right? And, you know, when you read the 13th Amendment or watch the film 13th, which I highly recommend that everybody watches uh, by Ava DuVernay, um, it shows the connectivity between the 13th Amendment and the current model of mass incarceration. And so because it's primarily affecting, you know, black and brown bodies from poor communities, um, it's ignored because we've been dehumanized in such a way as th that, it doesn't create broader empathy um, or compassion uh, for on a systemic level. You know, on a personal level, I met I know a bunch of incredibly dope white people who go inside prisons and do incredible work and who lead great organizations to shift that. But systemically, um, because that's been the, the kind of you know narrative for so long, uh, we haven't dealt with. It. And then the other part is like we don't deal with mental health in America in a way that. Um, that honors the people who are dealing with mental health issues, right? So when you think about who was in solitary confinement, the majority of people that I was around had like real mental health diagnosis and because the prison isn't equipped to deal with it through that lens, people end up in solitary confinement because that's the only way that the prison feels that they can control as opposed to help people, you know? And so that's really problematic and something that, you know, I wish we were paying more attention to. Absolutely. Um, and you have, like, you talk about 
we haven't dealt with it, but you have tried to change that narrative and deal with it. In the forward of your mm-hmm. book, you talk about how there was an MIT group that came into your community. They had all these big plans, and you stood up in that meeting and said, yo, this is like this missionary mentality, but you're not here to really solve these problems. If you really want to solve these problems, you have to engage with our community. So what inspired you to stand up and do that? Like, have you always had that sort of drive to push people to change narratives? I think I think that it kind of came from my own experience of being in, in prison and, and constantly being told that, you know, the likelihood of me getting out was non-existent. And if I did get out, I would be right back. And knowing that that wasn't the pathway that I was going to choose for myself. Uh, but also knowing that I had a skill set that would allow me to figure out a way to create a life for myself. And so going, going through, having gone through that, I realized that, you know, people create narratives that don't belong to them, you know, and they love to take control of people's stories that they haven't even been given permission uh, to take control of. And that's kind of what was happening with Detroit, where, you know, at one point we had all these people converging on the city and saying, oh, my God, the city is in ruins. And, you know, if we just put a garden here and I'm like, if you go in the community, you'll realize there are people been gardening forever Um, and that there's been a sense of community for a very long time. And until you actually come in uh, contact with the people in the community, like you have no permission or no right to actually come in and try to fix something when you don't know what needs to be fixed in the first place. And I think that, you know, the same thing in, in when it comes to criminal justice, like you can't talk about solving criminal justice issues without including the people who have been impacted by those issues. And so, I mean, there's organizations that's been created, uh, like Just Leadership, uh, that is primarily ran by system-impacted people um, and led by system-impacted people. And it was created by um, a system-impacted person uh, who has done incredible work to make sure that we're at the table, right? There's Anti-Recidivism Coalition in L.A. Uh, it, was, it was founded by, you know, Scott Butnick, who's a film producer. Uh, but he ensured that he had created space for it to be led by somebody who's system-impacted and that work is playing out now with Sam Lewis, who was in prison for like 24 years. Now he's leading one of the uh, most comprehensive organizations on reentry in a nation, if not in the world. And when you have courageous people like making those decisions, that's what it means to be like an ally. When you have uh, the, the Scott Butnicks of the world or you have, uh, you know, Glenn Martins of the world, who is also system impacted, but creating space for the system impacted people to lead, like you change the narrative because now it's coming from a very honest space because it's lived experience. You know, who better to talk about, you know, what solitary confinement is than somebody who's actually been in it and who really understands the impact because I've been impacted by it. And so um, in that way, I think the more we have people who have been through things speaking for for themselves, uh, the better the world becomes. Absolutely, because when you try to take control of someone else's narrative, as you say, there's inevitably going to be gaps. Like you're, you don't know what they've been through, so how would you yeah. be able to tell that story? Um, what does a better solution look like to you? And I know that's a huge question, but even if there's like minor changes or things that you would like to see or see more investment in, I mean, I think you know, in, in the most ideal world, we would eradicate the need for prisons to exist in the first place, right? Um, in a realistic world that we live in, I think if we can start from the very moment that a person encounters the judicial system in whatever capacity, right? If we can start with the intentions of helping this person reach the best outcomes possible for their life, I think that changes how we see things. I went to visit a prison in, in uh, Germany, and from the moment a person is arrested, 
they're working to help this person return to the community healthy and whole. And I think that's a model that can be replicated here in America. Um, but it takes a great deal of courage. It, it takes a great deal of honesty to say, hey, here's the thing that we got really, really wrong. Um, but if, if we're willing to acknowledge that, then you can actually proceed to the next step, which is to make things right. Incredible. Mm. Mm. And uh, I talked to Deanna earlier about the power and importance of creation and work. Um, and how's that been for you? Because you've had all sorts of um, outlets and jobs and been very, very successful in, in recent years. What I mean, the, the, the craziest and wild thing about it is that I've created all of those opportunities by just showing up in the world the way that I do. Um, I've never been employed through a traditional route of like putting in an application or, you know, sending over a resume. It's literally just been by how I chose to show up in the world. And I mean, you know, I'm fortunate. I went to prison, I was highly literate. And I enhanced my literacy by reading a lot and learning a lot. Um, but also, you know, I hustled in the streets. So I grew up hustling. And those are transferable skills. Like, you know, all of the marketing I've done around my books, like I learned that from Marketing Crack. Uh, the, my ability to network is based on me moving around in my city from the time I was a kid when my parents divorced and they were back and forth and moving to different neighborhoods. So I learned how to make friends relatively uh, easy by being open to just meeting new people. And so all those things are transferable skills that I've been able to apply to my life. And then, of course, being creative. You know, I'm inspired by hip-hop. Like, it's, it's to me, I think, you know, hip-hop has been... Um, you know, the greatest gifts of people who come from the hood, you know, in the sense that it's helped us think about entrepreneurship and enterprise and ownership and, and things like that. So I take a lot of my cues from like hip hop artists, you know, the Nas's of the world and, you know, people who inspire me deeply through their creativity and their vision for their own lives. Uh, T.I. was just, you know, talking to him and, you know, you, you think about these are guys who come from the hood, hard scrabble backgrounds, they took all the things they learned in the street and they applied them to art and they were able to create a life for themselves and their families. And so I just kind of do the same thing as an artist. Um, you know, in terms of social impact, like, you know, my real friends are in prison. So, like, I'm, I'm fighting for not just the, the largest changes, but also want to see my friends get home to their families and I want to ensure that they don't die in prison if there's something that I can do about it. So... Um, I'm just driven by those things. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so we're at a conference for lawyers, so I also wanted to ask, if in, in these communities, what is the biggest barrier to legal services and what can lawyers do to break that down? I think resources are the biggest barrier. You know, I think about a lot of people who end up in prison, they end up you know, getting public defenders who are under-resources, underfunded. Um, they don't have you know, all of the you know, uh, tools necessary to, to fight, you know, for their clients. And so they end up pleading them out. Um, I think the, the rate of people who plead guilty over who actually go to trial is probably, you know, probably 85, 90% of people I know took pleas. You know, they play it out um, instead of going to trial because the, the prospect of going against a titan of a system when you have meager resources um, is daunting. And then a lot of people are just like, yo, I, I don't want to take that risk to end up with life. So... I'll take this one or two years, not understanding that just having a felony is a life sentence in itself because our uh, society is so restrictive and, and, and unwilling to bend when it comes to helping people re-enter society. So I just think, you know, the resources, but also proximity too. A lot of lawyers 
uh, who are well-intentioned and well-meaning, like they don't come in proximity to their clients until they're actually being retained or being, you know, forced by the system to defend them. So, you know, it's hard to fight for somebody's life that you don't understand, who, if you don't understand their background. And so I think the more proximate lawyers can be to the communities that they serve, um, the better they can fight and advocate on behalf of their client. Does that mean like visiting communities or like hanging out up? in the hood, going to the barbecues and, you know, baby showers, baptismals, whatever those things are. But uh, just really spending time with people that, that come from the communities that they're likely to be serving. Yeah. You talk mm. about the power of connection a lot and com connecting communities with um, places like MIT. So how is that? Yeah. How important has that been in making an impact in these areas? Um, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, again, you know, you think about my relationship with MIT Media Lab. Uh, like I was in my T Media Lab, I was a director's fellow. Um, well, I'm still a director's fellow in the sense that that network created a different conversation at the lab that they, under normal circumstances, would have never been able to intersect with. You know, and so the the former um, director there, Joy Ito, who recently stepped down, uh, you know, he was just courageous in, in finding people who come from all these different backgrounds and bringing us into one space where we were able to intersect in a way that was groundbreaking, you know, and a lot of us have gone on to do great work based on our relationship and connectivity to the lab, but the lab was also able to do great work based on their connectivity to us. So I think it's important for us to really just create spaces for uh, people of, you know, dissimilar backgrounds to get together and figure out how to design a better world. Absolutely. What's mm. one thing that you're most proud of with your work with the lab? Um, one of the things I'm most proud of my work with the labs, I got nominated for a TED Prize uh, and became one of 20 finalists based on a project that I started at MIT Media Lab and went on to teach at the University of Michigan. So that's probably my, one of the prouder things. Uh, I had a wonderful conversation with, with Martha uh, Minnows at uh, MIT Media Lab. I think she's the Harvard Dean, Law School Dean. Um, that was one of my favorite conversations because she's like sweet and super smart and was super gracious. So I had a lot of fun at the, at the Media Lab. What role do you think lawyers have to play in making the justice system better? Because, I mean, we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis, like engaging with communities more, but lawyers also have power to make judicial challenges and to change the way the system works. Uh, if more lawyers can beat up more prosecutors, we would be <laughs> Great shape. No, seriously, I, I mean, I think, I think um, you know, the prosecutors have so much more leverage than the criminal defense attorneys in terms of how they charge clients. So I think if we can even really think about a way to challenge how charges are meted out, I think that's super important, right? Because we get so many prosecutors will stack all these ridiculous charges over one incident, and then it forces people to plead down to a lesser charge. And I think in, until we can fix that part of the system, we'll always have people taking these ridiculous frees. I'm like, you know, if you get arrested and, you know, you ran down the street, then it's like fleeing and eluding, resisting the officer, all these different charges. And next thing you know, you're facing 100 years. And then they're like, but if you just plead guilty to running down the street, then, you know, you'll only do two years. I think if we can, like, really challenge the idea of how charges are stacked by prosecutors, um, I think that would be helpful for lawyers in, in, a, in a major way. Yeah, absolutely. And 
What do you think about the perception of the system in the broader community? Because as you said, when you take people to prisons, they have no idea that like these are the type of people who are in prisons. Yeah. I don't think people know that like this the charge stacking you're describing happens. Yeah. Um, how do you think we can get the message out there so that people are aware this is how the system is really working? Yeah, I mean, I think we just got to continue sharing stories of people who have been through it, right? So, I mean, when I, when I think about where we're at with the criminal justice conversation now, um, five years ago, we weren't having this type of conversation. You know, now we're like having this incredible bipartisan conversation where both parties are actually agreeing that there's something, you know, wrong with our system. We have wardens who are saying, you know what, there's a different way to do this. And we're going to add more programs. We have governors who are like, you know what, these sentences are ridiculous. We need to bring an end to the death penalty and we need to like stop killing people on taxpayer dimes. And so we're getting some traction because of the storytelling that's happened. Like, I mean, you know, now there's there's any number of books on people who have got out of prison. Five years ago, it wasn't that many. Uh, there was, you know, um, you know, I think about the books about formerly incarcerated people that's by formerly incarcerated people. Uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, there were only a couple that you can point to. You know, it was uh, Malcolm X's autobiography, uh, Chef Jeff book, Cook, um, uh, Nathan, um, I always forget this brother's name, but Make Me Want to Holler, you know, and it was just a few books about formerly incarcerated people that were actually by formerly incarcerated. Now, it's a whole canon, you know, of these books. And so being able to be at the front of that charge, you know, as a writer and as a you know storyteller, I've seen firsthand what narrative does to shift policy. Humanization does to change legislation. Like I've watched it because I've been an integral part of helping shift it. And so I think we're on the right track. We just need to, you know, put these stories on steroids and get them out to more people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, say looking forward in like hopefully sooner, but in like 5, 10, 20 years, in an ideal world, what does a better solution look like to you? In, a, in an ideal world, uh, the prison population is dramatically decreased. Uh, I know we've been talking about cutting the prison population in half. I would like actually see it reduced like down to such a insignificant amount that we're no longer talking about it as a, a, a form of torture or a cheap and free labor. So that's what would happen in the most ideal world. Um, and you know, in, in a close, close hit, you know, future, uh, just to see more laws continue to get passed and more support around people who actually are getting out of prison, make sure that they have all the things that they need when they come home. Yeah, and the mental health support being like absolutely. A big I think we just need to decriminalize mental health altogether. Decriminalize mental health. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I mean, like you know, you have people who are in prison because they they were you know going through a psychotic episode and they may have commit was technically on books a crime, but you know, is it really criminal if you're operating out of mental illness space that doesn't allow you to function in a way that anybody else who doesn't have mental illness would function in those situations? And I think decriminalizing that, uh, you know, removing the uses of uh, solitary confinement, which tends to enhance uh, military illness, I think those things go hand in hand. So the more we can decriminalize mental illness, I think that will significantly reduce the prison population. Um, and and that in, that's inclusive of people who have been addicted to drugs because of whatever traumas they'd experienced in life. So if we can decriminalize those things, I think that significantly reduces the prison population. Just one final question I wanted to ask about. Um, there's something that both you and Deanna talked about, which is about 
not wanting to be defined by the worst moment in your life yeah, and, and how that shows up in a lot of maybe seemingly microwaves, but that are actually incredibly impactful in someone's life over the course of the entire yeah. life. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, here it is. I'm coming up on 10 years, you know, um, of being out of prison. And, you know, whenever I put in, you know, get ready to move to a different apartment or I have to go through this whole, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I have to explain all the backstory to, the, to who I am in order to convince, you know, um, owners to rent to me, right? And... You know, I'm fortunate to be able to figure some things out, and I got some good people that will vouch for me, but that's not everybody's reality. You know, when it comes to employment, you know, I've been self-employed in some capacity or a partner with companies or organizations that happen to know me through work that I started doing on my own, and, like, that changes, you know, the outcomes, but under normal circumstances, I can't just put in an application and get hired. Um, and so, you know, all these things, like, I can't get TSA, but I pay taxes, right? And so it's a lot of things that, that happens where, you know, some people can't vote, but they're still forced to pay taxes. And, like, that is ridiculous in a country that talks about freedom, right? Like, taxation without representation. And, you know, I think it's, it's unfair, you know, in some cases more of an inconvenience, but in other people's situations, like, that's devastating. Like, if you can't get housing, you know, sometimes you can't even go to a school, uh, and you may have children, so now you can't go and be a, a chaperone because of your past, you know, which means you can't, you know, watch an important part of your child's growth. So, I mean, it's just an, it's over 40,000 collateral consequences of having a felony, you know, and it shows up in different ways and it impacts the quality of people's life differently. Um, and even with the level of success I reached, there's still just the mental and emotional toll that that takes when you have to go through that process, you know? Um, and it's a lot of things, like even life insurance, like, you have to fill out an application and say, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Like, what does that have to do with my ability to pay my insurance for when I die? Like, you know, so it's things like that that are super crazy. And How does that feel for you? It feels terrible. It sucks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How can we improve the reentry experience for more people? Because as you say, like, you're fortunate and it worked out. Um, yeah. But for many people, that's not what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can improve it by being really courageous and saying, you know what, once you're out, your past is your past. You moved on from that. Let's start fresh. Let us support you in starting fresh and really mean that, you know, and actually do it in a meaningful way. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, oh, Shaka. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate you. In our next episode, we'll continue with part two of our conversation on criminal justice reform featuring our interview with another 2019 Clio Cloud Conference keynote, Deanna Van Buren. Thank you for listening to Matters. For more episodes, visit our homepage at clio.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, Teresa Matich, and Derek Bolin, and by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit us at clio.com.